So Romans chapter 5, it has been two months, and that is a very long time. I'm still questioning that decision. Uh, I really am thankful for the things that we talked about in the last two months. I think they were very needful. But it it is a lot easier uh, to be able to talk about a particular subject, and that's what we've been doing for the past couple of months. You know, you decide you want to talk about hope or you want to talk about peace, and you get to spend a lot of time going into a lot of different places and there's just a lot that you get welled up with and when you preach it's just kind of an overflow. But to settle back down in Romans, it's like I haven't worked out in two months and so this morning I plopped down on the weight bench and I think I'm going to do what I did two months ago and it's just not going to happen. It is really difficult to sit back down and read Paul and go, you know, my purpose here is for me to preach what Paul said, not what I say. And so you have to go back through that process trying to figure out what Paul has said. Now, we couldn't have stopped in a better place. I mean, we stopped on Paul's summary statement for the first four chapters. If you'll notice, chapter 5, verse 1, the first word is therefore. And he's literally saying, okay, everything I just said, let me carry into the next three words that I'm about to say. And so since we're there, let's take the time to kind of, and I I promise I won't be long. It'll be the fast review, but let's start back in chapter one and get the run up. Uh, One reason, if I don't do that, Sarah's going to kill me because she told me two months ago. Now, when you go back, I was like, I know I will. She said, we're not going to just remember all that and you take off running again. So let me run back through it very briefly and I'll bring us right back to the therefore and we'll see how far we get this morning with these first 11 verses. But Paul has sat down to pen a letter to a church he's never been to. And if you read much of Paul's letters, you you realize this man has such a heart for the churches. There's some things y'all have learned that I can't talk about. My wife's one of them, unless I cry. Paul can't talk about the church without tears just rolling down his face. He loves the church and sees it not as his bride, but as the bride of Christ. And he loves that bride. And so you pick it up when Paul starts talking about the church, you just... You just understand there's tears just rolling down his face because he's given his life for the sake of the church and seeing her get dressed for her wedding. Okay, so he's never been to Rome before and he's absolutely passionate about getting to Rome and ministering to that church. But first is first. And so he deals with the most important thing that he'll deal with. And that is with the subject of the gospel. Right. This book is about the gospel, and I'm so glad when I decided when we first started going through there, if I had to title Romans, I would just simply write the gospel over the top of all of my notes because that's all that this letter is about. More instruction about the gospel than you'll find anywhere else in the Bible. The good news about Jesus Christ. Now, being the Apostle Paul, he tells us back in chapter 1 that he feels obligated. He says, i got to get to Rome because I absolutely feel obligated to preach the gospel. In other words, Paul says, I want to get with the lost people. I want to share with them the good news about Jesus Christ because I'm absolutely under obligation by God to do so. And not just a burden, but it's a joyous burden that I preach the gospel. Paul knows that and we, we, talk, we already prayed for someone's salvation this morning. And I asked, if I asked you, could you just lift a hand if there's somebody in your family? You do realize every hand in the room would be lifted, right? And so the only hope for our family is this message, and that's why Paul calls it the power of God for salvation. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, 
no matter how good of a life you live, no matter about your words or the circumstances you want to put those people in, ultimately it is the gospel message that's preached in power is the only thing that can awaken the dead. And so we preach it as men, but we pray that the Spirit of God would preach it in power because when they hear from the Spirit, there's life that's breathed into that body and they stand up like a dead man and come to life. So Paul says, I'm under obligation to preach this gospel because this gospel is the power of God, right? But he also, having a bird for the church, and if you're in chapter 1, I want you to look back at verse 11. Paul makes this statement. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that, let me explain the spiritual gift, he says, you may be established. And when we started this letter, I, I told you that's what this letter is primarily doing. Paul is establishing the church. How do you establish the church? By preaching and teaching the gospel. You see, the gospel is what saves us, but the gospel is also what transforms us. You'll never get away from the gospel. Because the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's that glorious gospel that brings us to life. But it's also the power in that glory that dwells within us that makes us like Christ. We never get away from the gospel. So Paul says, I'm going to spend all my time, I would, have, I would imagine, just in case I don't get to see you, explaining the gospel in its greatest detail. Because Paul's so concerned about this gospel, because if this message is the power of God that changes lives, what do you think the devil wants to do with this message? Not stop it. And never do that. That's too blatant. Let's just change it just a little bit. He doesn't mind it being preached, but if we can manipulate it, twist it, change it just a smidge, we'll confuse everyone and there will be no power. And if there's no power, there's no salvation and they will not be able to come to life from the dead. And so Paul is radically committed to preaching the truths of the gospel. And he comes to this business in verse 17. I'm going to have to put on my glasses every now and then. In verse 17, he says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And you understand that righteousness is what you need to get to heaven. It's required. There's a requirement, and there surely is. It is this, righteousness, perfection. And the only way that we can obtain righteousness, according to the Apostle Paul, is through trusting what God has done in His Son alone. There is no other way. You can't obtain righteousness by being a good person. We've all failed with that. Can somebody please say amen? amen. Thank you, Danny. We've all failed. You can't do it. Danny's right. You cannot do it yourself. So let's just stop putting on makeup and clean clothes and coming and acting like we've done it. We haven't done it. We're just making fun of it. You see, righteousness can only come from God and the only way that He rewards us, if you will, with this righteousness that we need is through faith in His Son. It's what His Son has done. Now, Paul knows us, and Jared and I were talking about this morning, you just can't, you just can't convince people of anything. We, we think we know, and you just can't tell us anything. So Paul says, I'll prove it to you that it has to be by faith alone. 
because let's just talk about you as sinners. And he starts out with Gentiles. And Gentiles are everybody who's not a Jew. So there's a house full of Gentiles this morning. And he says, oh, y'all have done terrible with it. In fact, y'all have exchanged the glory of God for an idol. You, you don't even know God. You don't worship God. You've created your own God. You remember back in Genesis 1, man was created in the image of God. But as soon as man was born, he stood upright and he started creating his own God after his own image. And so the God that people say that they know, they know the God that they've created in their own hearts. And so Paul says you can go through it, you can talk about their immorality, you can talk about everything that they've done, but at the end of the day, they've exchanged God's glory for an image. They don't even know God. And he turns to the Jews, he said, but now if there's a people that know God, it's you Jews, because you are the only people that God has ever made Himself known to in such a miraculous way. He's even given you His law. My goodness, He wrote it down on tablets for you. And what did you do? Did you run with the glory of God? Not at all. You dishonored God because you rejected His Word. You basically said like a two-year-old, I'm not going to do it. That's what you did with the Word of God. It says, for, for the, and so in the case of the Gentiles, you've exchanged the glory. In case of the Jews, you've dishonored the glory. And so we walk into chapter 3 where Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of that glory. That glory. It's gone. You've ruined it and you've wasted it. And therefore, Paul comes back to, to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, because faith is the only way you could ever be justified. But let me give you a little bit of the end of the story. If you'll look with me in verse 2, and I'll read the whole thing so we can get to the end of verse 2. Having been justified by faith through Christ through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And notice the last part of verse 2. We, we, we exult, we boast, we rejoice in hope of the what? Of the what? Glory of God. There it is again. You see, in ourselves, we defame the glory of God. We exchange the glory of God. We ruin the glory of God as Gentiles. The Jews dishonored the glory of God. But through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, now we have a hope. And guess what that hope's for? The glory of God. We're back at it. And not only are we back at it, you do realize for the first time ever, we will share in that glory. When you think about this, we have it so much better than Adam. I realize he walked with God in the cool of the morning and that would be awesome. But that's not what this passage is communicating. Adam got to witness the glory of God. This is talking about sharing in the glory of God. You remember Moses? What happened when he'd go up on the mountain and, and spend time with God face to face? What would happen? His face would glow. And it would be such that, that he'd have to put a, a literal bag on his head to go down and talk to the people. And that glory would fade. I wonder how Moses felt. Just that glory fading. I bet... That he would say, man, when's it going to stay? When do I get to stay in your presence where this glory just never washes off, never wears away? When's that going to happen? This is when it's going to happen for us. Is when our Lord returns and we are with him in glory, rejoicing in the forever glory of God. We will share in that glory and we'll all, we'll all be a part of that glory. It's not going to wash off. It's not going to fade. It's not going to go away. 
That's why Paul says here, we got a hope, y'all. And now I'm talking, it's a serious hope. And in just a minute, we're going to talk about tribulations, but let me kind of introduce it and I'll come back to it. This is just one of those times where I'm, I guess I'm going to jump around and jump around. But we get so worried about what's in front of us and our sufferings and our tribulations. Let me tell you how small those are when you get your eyes set on the glory of God. And the fact that you're going to share in that glory through the gospel. That will make everything that you're worried about right now seem about that tall. It is utterly insignificant if we can get our mind and heart set on the glory of God. But now listen, that's a part only for those who have been justified by faith. In fact, Scripture says, if you look back at verse 5, in Greek, I know Paul didn't have chapters, but in Greek he summarizes four chapters with four words. Four chapters gets reduced down to four words. Don't you wish I could do that, right? The very first word is always the word that he wants emphasis on. And the very first word in chapter 5, verse 1, is the word justification. Justification. And then he says this, justification, therefore, ek, faith. And the word ek, if you've been coming on Wednesday night, means out of. So out of this faith, God has brought to us justification. And it's out of faith alone. It's not ek, faith, and works. It's not out of faith and works. It's not out of faith in baptism. It's not out of faith in sacraments. It's not out of faith in a prayer. It's not out of faith in the table. It's out of faith comes justification. Now when I say that word justification, the only thing that I want you to understand is not guilty. Justified literally means not guilty. Now, how in the world did he spend four chapters convincing us of our guilt? And then he turns around and he says, therefore, you've been justified, declared not guilty. How? That is not possible. The guilty cannot be made not guilty. Or can they? And we know they can because we understand the gospel. And it's through the gospel that you and I are declared not guilty. But God, again, and you know these things, but I'm just reminding you before I get to chapter 5, He doesn't tossle our hair. And He doesn't pat us on the backside and say, now run along and play. I fixed it for you. You're not guilty. That's not how that went down. Because we're justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was He who is the one who took on our guilt. I wish you could have been here Thursday. We were released time with the kids and, and just the way the Lord worked it out, there was just a few of us, just a few of us here. The rest of them had gone to a beta club or beta convention or something like that. So I don't know. I, I might have had 15 kids. And we were talking about the plagues. And I got to the last plague, the Passover, right, where they had to sacrifice the lamb and paint the sides of the door and the, the lintel at the top of the door and the other side of the door with blood. Because when judgment rolled through, God was going to kill the firstborn of every household, the firstborn of every animal. In other words, every family was about to have someone dead. That was the judgment of God, right? And I told them that God had told the Hebrews to get ready for judgment because you're going to sacrifice that lamb and you're going to take that lamb's blood and you're going to paint that doorpost and then you're going to go into the house and you're going to consume or eat that lamb. So at midnight, when the angel of death comes, he's going to see that blood. And he's going to pass right over that house and go, well, somebody's died there. On to the next house I go. 
So I asked them, I said, why did he choose blood as the sign? Why didn't he pick a flower? Why couldn't you just write home of the Hebrew? Or why couldn't you write Jehovah or, or Jehovah or God across the door? Why do you want blood, God? I don't understand. There's so many other things that you could choose to tip off the angel that we're the people of God. You know, we could do a lot of things. Why, why do you want blood? Well, the blood served the purpose because somebody had to die. So when the angel came and saw the blood, there had already been a death and it was by substitution because an angel died for the sake of the firstborn. And when I said, you understand, somebody had to die and the blood served the purpose of that angel seeing death had already taken place. There's one little boy, I'd never seen him before in release time. He turned white. He looked like he's going to throw up. And I hate to do kids that way, but that's a sign of, oh, you understand what I just said. Because somebody had to die for your sin. You see, to go from being guilty to not guilty, somebody's got to die. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you on Calvary. You're the one that's guilty, but He took upon your guilt and shame, and He died in your place. So that when judgment comes, God looks at the death and the blood of His Son and goes, there's already been a death here. There's no need for judgment. I'll just pass over. You see how good this gospel is? Because you're sitting up there under that blood, just as guilty as guilty could ever be. You're in your own sin, but you're under that blood because the penalty's already been paid. The death has been meted out. And you get skipped. And you get life. You see how wonderful this gospel is? Paul says, justified. That's the way he says it. Justified. And you think, not guilty. How in the world am I made not guilty? Well, by faith and faith alone, because you've got nothing that could produce that. You're not going to walk out up under that blood and puff that chest out and say, but I've been a good person, Lord. Oh, you'd be struck down before you got the second word out of your mouth. It's not happening. It's only by the blood of Christ that you and I are made not guilty. Now listen, there's so much stuff, and that's a very poor word. There's so much stuff that comes along with being justified. Paul could not possibly stack it up in one paragraph, let alone one letter. But he does begin to drop some things. If you'll notice with me in verse 1, we've got this idea of peace. We've been justified by, by faith. We have peace with God. Look at number 2. Not only that, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then the second part of that, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Look down at verse 11. Not only this, but we also exalt in God through Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we've got all these wonderful words that start popping out of Paul's mouth. You got peace, you got glory, you got grace, you got reconciliation, you got exulting or boasting or joy. And I thought, now he's not, you know, he's not writing a systematic theology book. What are, you, what are you doing, Paul? Because I was really getting frustrated that this was about to turn into some sort of math class where I was going to have my marker board up here explaining these words, and I know I do need to explain them. But then through the help of somebody that died like way back in the 1700s, I understood what Paul was doing. Because look at verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Look down in verse 11. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know how many references to Jesus Christ are in these 11 verses? Nine. And I thought, wait a minute. Paul's done that before. Where's he done that before? Ephesians 14 verses. 13 references to Jesus Christ. In other words, for Paul, it's all about Christ. From beginning to end, it is about Jesus Christ and no thing or no one else. It is all about His Son. Now, if you'll think about this with me, I'm about to just step all over your toes. If God did everything in and through and for the Son, I mean, He did nothing outside of the Son. You realize that? God the Father has never done anything outside of the Son. He's done everything in the Son, through the Son, and for the Son. Why in the world do we not, in consideration of our own lives, do everything for the sake of the Son? Why does most of our lives look like we live it apart from the Son when God Himself has never done anything apart from the Son? What is it that we think we can do apart from the Son? Do you really think that you can be a husband and a father apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, God invented husbands and fathers in Christ. He designed the husband and the father around Christ. And you're going to go be a husband and a father apart from Christ. Good luck with that. You know what you're going to look like when you get done? You're going to look like a fool. Because it has nothing to do with being apart from Christ. I hate to be so gruff, but I'm speaking to myself. If you know me, you know what I'm doing. Your mom, are you going to be a mom apart from Christ? You think you're going to be able to be a mother and stay at home with three and four kids and take care of a family and, and homeschool if you do and work a job if you do? You, you're going to do that apart from Christ? You'll have to tell me how. Because if the Father never created a thing in glory apart from the Son, how in the world are you going to take care of those kids apart from the Son? You know that I could spend the next hour just walking through scenarios with this right here, right? For you children, how in the world are you going to be the kind of child that your mom and dad dream that you'll be and pray that you'll be apart from Christ let me explain that to you. You will not. You cannot. It doesn't matter if you work for the water board. It doesn't matter if you're an engineer. It doesn't matter if you're a school teacher. It doesn't matter if you work online on a computer. It does not matter what you do. You cannot do it apart from Christ. Would you please stop and begin to pray and discern and figure out what it means to do what you do, everything that you do in Christ. Don McDougall and Steve, y'all know, have done more in my life in pouring into me. And I, I, I soak up every word. But one thing in particular stuck out with me, what Brother Don said. He said on his way home when he was married, and of course his wife has passed on now. He worked an hour away. He taught at Master Seminary. He'd drive an hour back home. When he'd get home, I'm pretty sure, I guess Steve will correct me if he hears this, his mom didn't cook. So here he's been working 12 hours. Hour drive home, he's going to get home, there's not going to be anything to eat, and you men know how you'd roll into that situation. 
And so he would drive through McDonald's and for a buck, he would get him a doll, he'd get him a hamburger and a drink. He would stop on the side of the road, he'd eat that hamburger, he'd drink that drink, he'd spend some time in prayer so he could walk in that house in Christ and engage his wife in love. You can figure it out if you want to. Or you can keep doing things the way you want to do them apart from Christ. And y'all, listen, he's about to walk into joy. And I don't know that we'll get there this morning, but he's about to walk into joy. You do realize those two things are inseparably connected. You can't have joy apart from Christ. And if you're in Christ, it's not possible for you not to have joy. If you're doing things in Christ and walking in Christ, it's not possible for you not to be filled with joy. But if you don't want joy... You just keep doing what you're doing in the way that you're doing it. And I'm telling you what, I found my life at this state in my life almost joyless. Because I've examined the things that I'm doing in Christ and I've examined the things that I'm not doing in Christ. And I'm like, well, it's your, it's your own fault. You're doing it your way. You're doing it in your strength. And you're not doing it through Him and in Him and for Him. You want to know why your conversations aren't filled with joy? Because your conversations have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It's not hard math. If you want your conversation and your words to roll off your tongue like absolute butter and honey to the person that's hearing you, make your words about Christ and that's how they'll roll off. It's all about Him. There is no part that's not about Him. And as believers... We need to understand that and put a stop to this business of living apart from Jesus. Because in Him is everything and apart from Him is not one single thing. Now since I'm on joy, let me just leave peace and grace hanging and go on to the second part of, of chapter, chapter 5, verse 2. Notice what Paul says there again. We... Exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now, Cody, Cody and I had this because Cody dealt with this word and we were back and forth. Exalt's a tough word. We don't ever use this word. It has something to do, well, literally it means boasting. And it, you think, when you hear the word boast, you're like, ah, oh, boasting's bad, I went on to boast. No, there's actually things that Paul boasts about that's perfectly okay to boast if you boast in Christ, right? Paul even boasts about his ministry in Christ. But this word's boast, and we immediately associate it with a negative thing, but it's okay if you learn how to boast in Jesus. But Paul is wanting us to boast, which in my mind, if we're going to boast, let me give you an illustration. Let me go back to this just a second. I'm looking forward to boasting in something. Because I'm really excited that my kids are getting married, because my kids get married, what am I going to have? Grandkids. And I, I've never had pictures in my wallet. Never. And we put them on our phone now, right? But I'm guaranteeing I'm going to have a paper copy of my wallet when I get a grandkid. Because I'm going to show off that picture of my grandchild and what am I doing when I do that? I'm boasting. Do you think there'll be a smile on my face? Do you think I will get on your nerves because you'll be like, yeah, I saw the picture last week and the week before and the week before. But is that going to slow me down? No. Why? Because I'm boasting in great joy. 
So through the gospel, Paul uses that word to talk about the fact that we've got something to boast about. We just can't shut up about because we want to tell you about what we have in Christ. And what we have in Christ is this hope of glory of God. And back to that thing I told you I was going to be here and there. That glorious shining of His presence, of His holiness, of His righteousness, of all of that we will share in. Paul says, let me start your joy there. It's way out there when Christ returns or when you go home. Get your eyes on that. But while your eyes are not there, let me go on to a second joy that you need to have today. And so look with me at at verse 3. He says, and not only this, we got something else to brag about and boast about and be joyful about, but we also exult in our, that has to be a mistake with the next word, right? Got to be a mistake. It's not. We also boast, brag, rejoice in our tribulations. You know, I've probably communicated that from this pulpit wrong because I've probably said, I know I have in the past, I don't know how long ago it's been, you don't boast in cancer, you boast in what cancer accomplishes in your life. Not according to the grammar, you boast in cancer. That's how Christians think. We boast in sufferings, particular sufferings. Why? What's the next word? Knowing. And you know, knowing, we can talk about perfect tenses. Y'all know I love perfect tenses. Knowing is in a perfect tense, and this is what this means. I stand in the state of knowing this, that my sufferings have been redeemed, and now my sufferings serve me. It doesn't matter what I go through. No, 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 no. My tribulations, I know, brings about perseverance. The more that's thrown at me, whether it be physical, mental, or spiritual, the more that comes at me in Christ, all that stuff gets reworked and re-redeemed and comes out the other side, but nothing but glory. Because now it's made me persevere. Now it's caused me to stand and not to wilt. Now it's caused me to walk and not to faint back. Now it's caused me to grow stronger and not struggle. And the more the tribulations come our way, the more we stand in perseverance. And what does perseverance prove? Proven character. That's the next word. You see, God remapped it and reworked it. And now it works for you. And so your sufferings become perseverance and your perseverance becomes proven character. You see, when you've been in something a long time, And you're able to start acting like Christ again. You've made it full circle. And now even though you're in the midst of the suffering and the tribulation, you're still humble and meek and worshiping the Lord and praising the Lord in the midst of that. Oh, now we've got some character in the house. Now we've been made the men and women of God. Now we're something and somebody. Because we have not allowed that to define who we are or our lives. We have not allowed that suffering or that circumstance or that hardship to redefine us and reshape us into somebody that's miserable and you just don't want to be around. No, we got proven character. We've been here a while. And now, through the grace of God, we're manifesting Christ in spite of that. Ms. Berman's not here. 
So I'll talk about it if I can. I don't know if you were here last week, but y'all see her walk up here and put that up on the table. I looked at Paige. Paige immediately started crying. I looked at her. I said, what about that? She's been in something. And there's others here that I will not embarrass. They've been in stuff. You know? And by the grace of God, they persevered through some stuff. She hopped up out of that chair with some proven character. Did, were y'all here last Wednesday night? Guess who was serving the kids? Miss Burma. Took a picture and I sent it to Steve. And I said, look who's got an apron back home in the house serving the saints. I said, just a few months ago, her son died a few months before that. Her husband dies, and here we are. We're back in the house. We've got the apron on, and we're serving the saints. we got some character because we've been through some stuff. Right? And by the grace of God, we've got joy because He's, he's manifested some Christ-likeness in that woman's life. Right? Now let me ask you something. When you go through tribulations, you develop perseverance, and perseverance runs out to proven character... What is the end of verse 4? And proven character produces what? We're back to it. Hope. And hope will never disappoint. You see, there's purpose in all these things that we go through. Yes, we can get filled with joy. And yes, we can look forward to glory. And yes, you better be doing that every day that you can. But you do realize tomorrow when you may wake up in the middle of what you're suffering with and what you're walking through, just clap your hands and praise God for just a minute because He is doing something in you that He doesn't do in anybody else other than His own children. You see, it's really sad if you don't belong to Christ because those tribulations are producing something in you that's it's not good. But if you're a child of God, those tribulations are producing something for you that, well, Paul calls it glory. And I can't think of a better word. There's not a better one in chapter 5 than glory. And he's producing that hope for glory. One last thing. I know I eventually have to land this plane, even though I'm nowhere near finished. But we do have to land this plane. But I want you to see how sure your hope is and what your hope is based on. Look at verse 5. He says, hope does not disappoint and here's why your hope in Christ can never disappoint you, because it's not based on you. Your hope is based on the love of God, which has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who He has given to us. Notice, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he talks about our love. Look at our love in verse 7. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates His own kind of love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Your hope, and we talked about this when I talked about hope, your hope doesn't stand on your ability to muster up hope. Your hope doesn't stand on your personality. Y'all ever get around those people you're just like, they get on your nerves because they're happy all the time. And you're just like, are you even real? Because you kind of get on my nerves. You're, you're, you're just happy. Hope doesn't rest on your personality. Because I like to be grumpy sometimes. Hope doesn't rest on me or anything about me. 
or going on with me. Hope rests on God and His love for us. And it's not our kind of love. That's why he puts that phrase in. Would someone die for a good man? Someone might die. That's our kind of love. There's actually men in here that would probably die for good people. There's men in here, all of them, that would die for their wives. That's the kind of love that we have. It's admirable, but it's because of. I would die because she's my wife. I would die because he's my son. I would die because he's a good man. That's not God's love. While we were still yet sinners, sinning against God, God died for us. It's an entirely different love, and that's the love that your hope rests on. It's a crazy kind of love. It's a wonderful kind of love, a love that we don't comprehend. So go ahead and have hope, because it won't be disappointed. You can't be disappointed. It rests squarely on the shoulders of God and His love for us. One last thing, because the love gets better. I, I, I did not understand this for days on end, and then finally... By the grace of God, I figured it out. I want you to look at verse, let's see. Yeah, verse 9. Because I'm going to read through a couple of verses here, and then I'll explain them because it is pretty difficult. Much more than. All right, he's talked about the love of God for us through the death of Christ, but he uses this phrase, much more than, so he's climbing higher. And he says, Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, here He goes again, much more having been reconciled, we're going to be saved by His life. And what does that mean? Let me shorten it down for you this, this way. I think this will work. While you were a reckless rebel running, Against the will and the glory of God. God loved you so much He saved you. Let me say that one more time. While you are a reckless rebel running against the glory of God and disobeying God at every turn, He loved you so much He died for you. Now let me ask you this. How much more do you think He's going to love you now that you're His child? Woo! I can't, I can't even fathom the kind of love that's in store for us as the children of God, because I know what He did for me when I despised Him and I hated Him. I know what He did for me then. But now that He's adopted me and changed my last name, I can't imagine the love that we will experience from our God when we get into the presence of His glory. I cannot fathom it, but you have a hope in it. So let me tell you, Hope just as much as you can hope. Throw some wood on top of the fires of that hope and let it burn just as bright and hot as you can get it because it will never go away. And I promise you, you will never be disappointed. It's going to be more glorious than I can ever imagine. We have a hope of the glory of God. And Paul says, you don't understand it. And you think you understand the love of God because He, he loved you when you were a sinner. No, 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 no. What in the world? And, and you know, we could use the word bride, and I started to use the word bride. Because you loved that girl, and you did stuff for that girl, right? When you were trying to get her to date you. But how much more love? And how much more did you do? 
the day she became your bride. What God has done for us through Christ is absolutely amazing, beyond measurable and precious. But the love that He has for us now, my goodness, y'all, praise God. And do you realize you will dwell in the comfort of that love for the rest of eternity for those of you who are in Christ? We haven't a clue of love. Oh, but we're going to know it to its fullest measure forever. Let's pray.